not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And this is a podcast where we talk about a really super cool guy, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> yes, it is. Tyler, are, are you ready to just talk about how cool and smart Tucker Carlson is today? Oh, I so am. Because yeah, I, I, I feel like we've been really negative on the show lately. And so I want to just focus on his good qualities because he, he, he really is just a, a, a beacon of light out there. Despite his faults, what's great about Tucker is that he owns them and he, he's better for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't want anyone to call our show anything other than fair and balanced. So if we say something negative about him, we have to say something positive about him immediately afterwards. So that's that's this episode, right? That's the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and we, we we do have a, a a cool and interesting episode to go over this week. But first, I think we have some new donors to thank. Um, we have one new donor to thank, and we have several old donors to thank. <laughs> Um, okay. So, um, one new patron we have, uh, Jack here is an elite. Thank you very much, Jack. And then, um, because our community is so lovely and generous, uh, we have four patrons who increased their pledges after last week. So thank you to all of those people. And I'm going to read them off. Ronnie Neely, um, increased their pledge to just asking questions. Thank you very much, Ronnie. And Nick Sansone, Sansoni. I probably did the same thing the first time and didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, Nick increased his pledge to um, Lying Smug Pompous Groupthinker. Thank you, Nick. And Jeff Carmen uh, increased his pledge to Sworn Enemy. Thanks a ton, Jeff. Which is very generous, very generous tier. Um, and finally, Master Gravy also increased their pledge to Sworn Enemy tier. You're a hero, Master Gravy. Uh, yeah, uh, so our, our community is, unen- is unendingly generous, and we can't thank you enough. Yeah, it, it, you, you're all the greatest, the, the greatest people, almost as great as Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we appreciate all of you so much. Um, we have an episode to do today, Tyler. I decided to do this for this episode today because last week we, we documented a pretty dramatic escalation in Tucker's um, white genocide rhetoric. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, we did do that. And I was thinking back to our second episode of this show. Um, we were very much still getting to know Tucker and, and kind of how his, how his world worked. And um, on, on the second episode that we covered, he brought on Heather McDonald and um, she said something that we flagged as, oh, that's kind of white genocide. And at the time we were like, man, that's pretty crazy. Even for Tucker. I wonder if I wonder if he'll ever have her on his show again. <laughs> we thought that might be too far for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so just in the spirit of remembrance, I want to play that clip again from this is from February, and uh, th- this is what, at the time, got us concerned about the content on Tucker's show. Asset race talk is really hurting the country. It's based in lies, makes people hate each other. I wonder if they know that. I mean, do you, what is the end game here? And I, a, 
it's an open question, but quickly, I mean, how do you think they think this ends up in the end? They want to completely change the character of this country, the foundation of it, the norms, the traditions, and the demographics of it. Okay. Seems pretty tame now. I know, right? <laughs> that has been absolutely lapped in the months since by Tucker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so with that in mind, I, I wanted to announce, Tyler, we're going to be embarking on a bit of an investigation, you and me. Okay. I want to see if I can find out at what point Tucker became beholden to this, um, this reactionary white identity stuff, because it, 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 as far as I can tell, it doesn't show up in a lot of his earlier work. It appears to have really hit the ground running once he got his his show in uh, in 2016, 17. And so I, I want to see if I can pinpoint like where he started talking about the white identity stuff. Um, I don't know that we'll be able to to find like a causal route, but I'm interested to see if there is one. And so in, in the spirit of kicking off that investigation... I thought it would be good for us to revisit Heather MacDonald because um, she was sort of the impetus of us realizing the Tucker show was headed in a very dark direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then an- another reason I find Heather MacDonald relevant today is because uh, this, the story, the story broke last week or a study was published in the Lancet titled Fatal Police Violence by Race and State in the USA, 1980 to 2019, a network of meta-regression. So did you hear about this? I did not. So this was a massive study. Because what they did, they compared data from the U.S. National Vital Statistics System, which is kind of the, um, the, the system the government uses to keep track of fatalities and what's causing them throughout the country. Um, okay. They took that data and they compared it to three open source non-government databases, which were um, mapping police violence, fatal encounters, and the counted. And what they found was that the number of police killings over this 40-year period from 1980 to 2019 were dramatically undercounted. That They estimated 30,800 deaths as a result of police violence in this time period, which represents 17,100 more deaths than were reported officially by the NBSS. So that means that for 40 years, we've been underreporting police fatalities by half. Oh, wow. Okay. That's not good. (laughs) Yeah, so this is... This is honestly like astonishing. This is like a a fifty five percent increase in how many people we thought police were killing in this time period, which is already a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm so frustrated because this is exactly the shit that Tucker is like. See, we can't trust any of our systems because they lie to us. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's like there are a lot of a lot of things implicated in this, like um the. In, in a lot in a lot of counties, coroners are elected and not necessarily required to even have a medical degree. And it, when you're elected, one of the things that's good to do is like maintain a friendly relationship with local police, right? Because that's mm-hmm. a, that helps you get reelected. And so then, um, 
there was there was reporting from pathologists about pressures from like coroners and police departments to to change the result of their findings or just like not mention that there was police involvement. <sighs> and with that in mind, Heather McDonald, she's somebody who a big part of her project over her career in public life has been to um, whitewash the, the systemic problems with police. So um, she wrote a book called The War on Cops, which was all about how you know, police aren't actually racist and racial profiling doesn't exist. They're just going where the crime is. And this vilification of police is going to be bad for the country. That, that, that's kind of really the main theme that runs through most of her work. Pretty basic uh, racist take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with these things coinciding, you know, with the timeliness of this report and with um, us wanting to inv- us wanting to embark on this this white identity investigation from Tucker's world, I thought this would be a good a good time for us to talk about the interview on Tucker Carlson today that Tucker did with Heather McDonald. So this was kind of earlier in Tucker Carlson today's run. This is one of the earlier interviews that he did. Um, this is conducted shortly after the Derek Chauvin verdict and uh, kind of right on the heels of the, uh, the killing of Micaiah Bryant, who um, she was the, I believe she was 16 and was shot while attempting to stab another girl. Oh, I, I think that I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, right after. so that's kind of where we are chronologically when this interview takes place. Okay. And so Bad times is where we were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As opposed to the rosy times we're in now. Um, exactly. Yes. It's, it's a good thing. We left all our problems. <laughs> um, and uh, Heather McDonald. So she is a Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute also employs a friend of the pod, Chris Rufo. Um <laughs> 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 and, uh, friend not a friend of the show <laughs> um and the thomas w smith of course the thomas w smith foundation we talked about in the critical race theory episode they're kind of this shadowy foundation funded by this this secretive billionaire who um they they dole out a lot of money to different organizations that promote that fear monger about critical race theory and promote other kind of um like anti-affirmative action, anti-diversity programs. So that's kind of the academic waters that Heather McDonald comes out of. And uh, with that in mind, let's jump in and hear how this interview begins. All right. Heather McDonald, you're one of those people I was thinking about what to ask you, anything, basically. (laughs) (laughs) You are... um, you just thought so deeply about all these issues. It's it's kind of hard to know where to begin, but I want to begin generally. Uh-oh. There's a sense that people have that our urban spaces, our common spaces, or cities are in decline. There are a lot of ways to measure that. How do you measure decline? Decline is whether a culture has the confidence to stand up for its own values that make for civilization. We do not. And the visual signs of that loss of confidence are around us every single moment in our big cities today, above all, by the permission for vagrancy and homelessness. Yes. It is not a should not be controversial to say you do not get to colonize city streets. 
that people that have worked hard to work their way up the housing ladder, that are trying to raise children, they have a right to expect streets to be passable, clean, not to have litter and feces everywhere. We have so lost confidence in the basic values of urbanity and of civilization that we cannot say this is not permissible any longer. And once you allow that, we have enabled a lifestyle that is going to make cities, forget even COVID, forever more impassable. Decline is when I have to see homeless people? Yes, that is, that's really the only place this conversation goes. <laughs> okay, yeah, and like, in a twisted way, I want to agree i think it civilization is in decline if we have a lot of homeless people living on the street we should be helping to get them into houses but i don't think that's what her takeaway is from seeing homeless people on the street (laughs) yeah no she she's gonna elaborate a bit more on like what she thinks the problem here is and it's it's pretty fucked up but um the it's what these people jump to is that like when they see people experiencing homelessness, all they see is a blight on the landscape. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, get get that out of here, because I want to walk in a clean city street. It's, yeah, it, it it's fucking gross. It's <laughs> like, so gross. I, I I don't understand like dehumanizing people that easily. Yeah, like they treat them like stray dogs. Like they're just because <laughs> what? Well, someone should help that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Heather McDonald at that point she. She said there that when you allow when you allow people to colonize your streets, you're enabling a lifestyle that makes cities impassable. She's considering like being homeless a lifestyle, and she's going to make that even clearer as we go. But the it, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that if you looked, you could find me examples of people who chose to be homeless. Um, that is not even close to the majority of people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, why? Who the fuck has ever lived in a house and thought, you know, I'd rather not. The street sounds comfier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, Fucking it, no one. <laughs> like, Overwhelmingly. If given the choice, nobody, cho- nobody prefers being exposed to the elements being the subject of potential police violence and ridicule uh not being able to bathe or find work being being food insecure being like mm, that, yeah that this is not this is not a lifestyle that anyone anyone's yeah that sounds great to me yeah so then yeah let, let let's let's let her elaborate on this a little bit so we i guess what you're saying is we shouldn't be surprised by what we got since we allowed it right i've done i've spent time on skid row in la which is truly hell on earth there is no other homeless area even san francisco to compare to skid row it is like you're in a boshian nightmare and i've had people tell me there oh yeah people come from iowa because they've heard that you can party on skid row without any kind of check on your behavior people who deny that this is a lifestyle choice are completely selling a myth because people understand that if you allow it they will come they'll you'll get more of it a hundred years ago it was not controversial police moved people along they said you don't get to colonize there were skid rows that were cage hotels cheap very cheap 
housing. SROs. SROs that people could afford even though they were alcoholics. Now the, the homeless advocates have this fabulous bargain where unless you provide everybody with their own private apartment, cooking facilities, you know, meets all the earthquake codes, they have to stay on the street. And the reason they, the advocates want them on the street is because the homeless become visible symbols of the evils of capitalism. Uh, and, and so as a result, if we can't move them along and we've got people delivering pizza to people's cardboard boxes and delivering blankets and tents, it becomes a lifestyle choice. Okay. There are a couple of things in there, at least. Um, I feel like we kind of brushed over it a little bit, but like, I really hate her use of the word colonization. Yeah. Like there's some other people who weren't born in that city and then lost their house or apartment or whatever it is. It, like what she said about people, homeless people coming from other places to go live on Skid Row because you can party with impunity. It would not surprise me if somebody living in an area that was more hostile to the conditions of being homeless and maybe there were less resources available to you. And then you you found out about a place you could go to where the area might be more amenable to, to your needs and you might not be harassed by police and the like, you might try to get there. Yeah. Like that, that's just reasonable. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And then they, they were talking about the, the they, there used to be these SROs. That's a, uh, single room occupancy so these were um i mean they're they're still around but there are less of them than they used to be where people could essentially rent uh a a single room that had like usually a a cot and a chair um and maybe a desk and then there wouldn't be like a kitchen or a bathroom or anything the building would have shared facilities outside the room that you could use um and these were like the, the cheapest available units of housing in a lot of cities the main reason that there are less of them now is not because activists want to make sure that that homeless people live in luxury. It's because these buildings have been bought up by real estate developers and turned into condos. Oh, that that was another thing. She talked about how um, the seeing homeless people on the street is a symbol of the evils of capitalism, except she said it um, sarcastically. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I I would agree, Heather. Actually, <laughs> I think you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the richest country in the world, uh, there's no reason that people should have to live on the street. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Only under capitalism. And then, like, I was reading about some of these some of the SROs that are still available in New York, and um. They're they're definitely the cheapest units of housing available in New York, but rent still ranges from like five to seven hundred dollars a month. Jesus which, Christ! Yeah, which can still be very difficult for people with you know, especially especially if you have issues with addictions or mental illness, or maybe um, just because of your circumstances, you don't have a stable like employment history. Yeah, then it like that can still be very hard to make. And like. But, where where we live that gets that easily gets you like a a one bedroom apartment with like a living room and a bathroom and everything you know, like right, yeah you would expect yeah so, my, that's insane it, my first apartment and granted it was like subsidized low income housing but my first apartment i paid 533 dollars a month and it was for for a, a one bedroom with with a full kitchen and bathroom 
that would not exist in cities that tend to have higher concentrations of homeless people. Because like a lot of this is geographically bound by Mm -hmm. where the cost of living is. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're, they're not even close to done. This next clip is weird. So they're, they're going to talk about how they think liberals see this and enjoy it. <laughs> so d- describe the thinking here, if you would. It's, it's incomprehensible. I think most people, certainly I'm in this category, see homelessness, graffiti, filth, and say, this is the last thing I want or I want to be around. This is a sign of disaster. This is a disaster and human suffering. Another sort of person looks at this and, and doesn't feel that way. Right. Why do a certain sort of affluent, well-educated, I'll just be honest, white liberal, uh-huh. want this crap? Because they like to feel that they're part of, by now, an endlessly hoary, outmoded, ancient, anti-bourgeois ethic. That somehow they're part of this rebellion against capitalist uh, normalcy and conformity. So they feel, I remember it started in Tompkins Square Park before Mayor Giuliani came and transformed New York City. There was this park on the Lower East Side that was just drug infested. And there was the squatters and the New York progressive left. This gave them power and energy and happiness because they thought we're sticking it to the man. Uh, And finally, People said this is not allowable any longer, and they did clean it up. But for a while, you still have people from the New York Times. I remember Sam Tannenhaus wrote this piece in, I think, the New York Times magazine, nostalgic for the grit of New York. Remember those that that whole conceit? Oh, it was a whole whatever genre. Happened, what, whatever happened? CBGB's closed. I, why do I live here? Exactly. Yeah. What happened to the prostitutes in Times Square? Well, they're coming back. You know, everybody was confident that that Mayor Giuliani and then Michael Bloomberg after it had set a benchmark of low crime, passable city streets that no mayor would want to violate on his watch because they'd shown that crime is not the inevitable condition of New York City. But it's it's like a kind of decadent voyeurism on the part of New York Times editors, isn't it? They don't want their own daughters to become hookers or junkies, of course. They just like to have hookers and junkies around because it makes them feel alive, maybe? Okay. So the question was, why do white liberals think homelessness, graffiti, and filth is good? Yeah. Okay. And then they talked about it for two minutes somehow. Um, So uh, I do not identify as a liberal, and most of my friends don't either. (laughs) So um, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask what what the liberal position is, but... um, I suspect that um, a Democrat would probably advocate for something like more funding for homeless shelters and things like that. So I don't know where they get this idea that liberals like homelessness. Yeah, this is really weird that they're like, I don't understand how they got here. (laughs) Yeah. Because liberals apparently don't want police, quote, moving people along, that means that they want junkies and hookers around because it makes them feel alive. Um, Or it's like this decadent anti-capitalist voyeurism 
<laughs> which, uh, which no, it is. Which first of all, liberals like capitalism, <laughs> so you're not talking about liberals anymore. If if it's if it's an anti-capitalist thing, um, yeah, and I like trying to find something at the bottom of the well that might might track what they're talking about. I can see maybe like a certain voyeurism in that like oh i i i i gave i gave that person four dollars and half a sandwich so i i'm i'm a good person i've done my part while still like supporting the the systems that that create poverty right um but that's not the same like i i might call that a decadent voyeurism if that's what we were talking about that's not what they're talking about no they're they're going to talk a bit later about who they talk to outside of their kind of ideological echo chambers. And I think that's going to be revealing because they, they just completely misunderstand this entire dialogue. If you don't mind me backtracking a little bit, um, fuck Tucker Carlson. Graffiti art is cool as hell. Um, we should have more places where people are just allowed to paint on the walls. I forget which city it is, but they they just have a wall where you're allowed to paint on it if you want. And like people and then artists go and like do graffiti art on it. And uh, it's cool as fuck. Uh, and Tucker Carlson's an asshole. Yeah. Oh, I'd rather look at a bare brick wall. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop from asking you, since you just mentioned former Mayor Giuliani, who yeah. really did rescue the country's biggest city from itself was raided by the FBI today. The FBI came to his office with a warrant, seized his possessions, including his phone. (laughs) And because he's a criminal now, because he was Donald Trump's lawyer in the weeks after the election. I just want you to contrast that and a lot of other things, putting Trump voters on the no-fly list, keeping protesters from January 6th in jail, in solitary in the D.C. jail. Contrast that, this crackdown, this use of the law in a very punitive way, contrast that with the absence of any law as it applies to the homeless or rapists or gun criminals. Like, it's a really stark difference. I don't know what we do, Tucker. I I really don't. We are talking across such a divide. I cannot see how we get out of this. Each side has its own set of facts. I can put forth until I'm blue in the face the fact that if you look at the number of police killings of blacks compared to the number of black killings of blacks, you are in the minus digits and it doesn't matter. I don't know how we how we bridge this divide and the the fiction we've been living through these sort of theatrical fictions recently, whether it's the fiction of the white nationalist terrorist threat. And so we had the theater around the Capitol. So the the whole purpose of the three months of barbed wire and barricades and National Guard was to have a visual representation of this phantom threat. The, The outdoor masking for COVID is the same thing. It's a visual representation of the phantom idea that that sickness and death is everywhere, which is, of course, was scientifically bogus from the start. And you didn't even need to read the studies about no outdoor transmission. You could have used your common sense that, of course, outdoor disperses the viral load that is essential to get ill. 
So I, I I stopped it here, but this is only halfway through her gish galloping her way through this question. Yeah, I um I got stuck on uh, Tucker's opening thing and kind of got lost. She went crazy about COVID or whatever. Um, yeah. but the the thing I got stuck on is so the the right paints itself as like the party of law and order or whatever, and. Then Tucker goes on the show and says Giuliani is a criminal because he was Trump's lawyer. He okay, Giuliani isn't a criminal until he's proven guilty, first of all, which is like a foundational American principle. <laughs> um, and he's not a criminal because he was the lawyer of a president that the left didn't like. He, um, I don't know what the I, I forget what is going on with Giuliani at this point if he'd like. I don't think he got found guilty for anything, but the FBI has the right to investigate him. If, if they suspect him of a crime, that's like a thing. <laughs> that's why we have the FBI is to sort out crimes. Yeah. And the, 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 the main thing that the main thing that triggered this raid was um, failing to register as a foreign agent while working on behalf of foreign governments, which is a uh, law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. It, it was telling to me there the way that Heather McDonald's mind just went on like a roller coaster track when she was asked that question. Like the, and like I said, she's not even done changing the subject. <laughs> um, and we've already hit COVID, and we had the quote unquote fake threat of white nationalist terrorism, which we talked about a bit last week. Um, and then the barbed wire around the Capitol, which was the response to continued threats of violence pertaining to like the uh, the inauguration and things this is this is just a really scattershot like obfuscate 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 all they do is try to confuse the issue yeah in, in case somebody didn't listen to the dan bongino episode it, I'll, I will i will mention really quick that uh they're talking about how rudy giuliani cleaned up new york and everything which is kind of a myth um yeah the, the there was a dropping crime in new york during his tenure as mayor but it coincided with an overall decrease in crime across the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only, like when you isolate for the effects of Giuliani's policies, the only difference it seems, it seems to correlate to is an increase in complaints about police abuses. Um, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's get back to Heather McDonald still not answering this question two minutes <laughs> later. <laughs> and then we also had the media going nuts at the terrible Atlanta spa shooting, and we saw in front of our eyes the construction of a lie, which was that the threat to Asians was from white males. And they seized on this this deranged, guilt-ridden, evangelical white guy who was shooting up out of a penance for his sexual lust. And he became the face of violence against Asians when the fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority of violence against Asians is by blacks. But we have the left putting us all into these weird drama narratives in order to give meaning to a lie that is of of it's like a dandelion in, a, in the wind. It has no substance whatsoever. And yet we're all supposed to pretend that these lies have actual flesh and bones on them. It's truly extraordinary. And so arresting Giuliani, pretending that he's at the sort of sphere of some 
domestic terror assault, and that that's what we have to fear in this country, not rioting that is violating due process. You know, the criminal justice system now cannot treat police officers, I don't think, from here on in, give them due process because the threat of rioting is so big. That's what we have to worry about in this country. It's not the stop the steal people, however deluded they may, may well be. So the, the thing that uh, stuck in my ear was that the overwhelming majority of violence done against Asians is done by black people. Um, I question that. I somehow doubt that that is not the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, the, this and the this talking point about black and black crime, these are two things that she, that she gets a lot. Um. So within racial categories, victims of violence, overwhelmingly, the perpetrator of the violence is of the same race as the victim. Like that's across racial groups across the board. Okay. So there was a period over the summer where that was let that wasn't true for Asian Americans. There was a spike in hate crimes against Asian Americans committed by black Americans. Um, th- there is like a really complicated history uh, about um like tensions between African-Americans and Korean-Americans, which was a, a big story during the, uh, the Red and King riots in the 90s. And, and a lot of that has to do with uh, immigration practices favoring like high-skilled immigrants from Asian countries and this idea of kind of like the, the model immigrant that because Asians are considered the ones that assimilate into white society the best. Right. Um, and like that, that that's a more complicated topic than I'm prepared or qualified to get into. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the the thing about most violence against Asian Americans being committed by Black Americans, that's more of an aberration than a general trend. And okay. um, there was also a, a study um, earlier this year that did find that the the single most common factor that that predicted racist attitudes toward Asians pertaining to the coronavirus is white Christian nationalism. So um, that that was overwhelmingly like the the most predictive factor in whether or not you're racist against Asian people. Okay. Yeah. And I was trying to find uh, the specific shooting she was talking about. Uh, It looks like that guy very specifically targeted Asian women. So to say that that wasn't a racially charged thing seems very um erroneous yeah and uh, around the time <laughs> around the time of that shooting I, I i was seeing some like pieces written about the um there's kind of this fetishization of asian women in in western culture and yeah. again that's another thing that i don't feel totally prepared to unpack <laughs> from my from where i'm sitting yeah not today <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I will say, I find it fascinating the way that the way that they'll talk about that shooting. And it, it was this poor evangelical guy who was acting up out of a penance for his the, the shame of his sexual lust. It, it's crazy how much leeway white Christians get to commit atrocities. Like, yeah, it, it, just imagine if, if it had been so, so even the same motivation. So somebody professing that. They felt shame over their sexual lust because of their religious faith, but they were a Muslim and they and they shot up a spa. What would the reaction be then? Would it would it be oh this poor religious guy just 
buckle under the shame of his convictions or would it be no fucking way <laughs> yeah this is proof that islam isn't compatible with western values it's... exactly very true and like <sighs> i know a lot of people uh online and off who um have who struggle with porn addiction like there's entire giant communities <laughs> who like have an unhealthy relationship with their sex lives um and they overwhelmingly don't shoot up spas yeah 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 it, sexual frustration is not an excuse for violence <laughs> yeah yes thank you for making my point for me better <laughs> the only excuse for violence is like if somebody steals your churro Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So then uh, they're going to get into the the left. And I don't think I have the clip, but Heather McDonald says um, the difference is that on the right, we're bilingual. So we know that we know their arguments on the left. They don't know what our arguments are. And given that they earlier in this interview talked about how they think that liberals get off on seeing homeless people. Yeah, hilarious. Yes, (laughs) but this kind of stems from that conversation. So, I mean, do you feel as a scholar, as someone whose life has been devoted to finding the facts about something and then presenting them as clearly as you can to people, the presumption behind that? I mean, that whole business, your life is predicated on the idea there are rational people out there willing to change their minds based on evidence. I wonder if this shakes your faith in that. It certainly does. I mean, I despair every day. I really do. I despair. I despair reading the New York Times, and yet I have to do it. I wish I could cordon myself off from it. But the the amount of editorializing and this myth that the problem in this country comes from right-wing white people is just extraordinary. So, yes, if we don't have facts, if facts don't matter, as you well know, the only alternative then is violence. Politics, as Aristotle said, is action through language. That's the essential thing of politics. But if language doesn't work, human beings have two choices, politics or brute force. And how much longer we're going to continue talking past each other and the left plays dirty because they, as you have been covering like nobody else, they are shutting down our speech. And without that, what what do we do? What do we do? I don't know. I don't I don't know where this is going. And nobody wants to sound like a Cassandra and pulling the emergency cord on the train. Uh, But in another year, I don't know where we're going to be at the rate at which the shamelessness with which they are shutting down conservative publishing, conservative media, Twitter. What's going to be left and the, the childlike naivete of the left in not understanding the power of precedent is, is sort of charming in a sense. They are so ignorant that they don't understand that they're setting a, a precedent for censorship that if the right ever does gain more power again, could be used against them. Uh, but they, they can't think abstractly enough in terms of principle to, to understand that either that or they're confident that they will... That, Power will never switch. And the way things are going with their controlling the levers of communication at this point, they will maybe right. At which point 
you become a dissident? Uh, I, I, you go underground? I don't know. I guess so. Uh, how do you even respond to this, man? It's just, it's so, it's so much projection. And in the same breath, she's talking about how we can't have facts anymore. And then just outright lies about how things work in the world. <laughs> like <laughs> the left plays dirty. The left too. Okay. I won't say the left, but Democrats, which is who they're talking about. Um, to a fault refuses to do anything except follow the rules <laughs> yeah where like whereas republican you know mitch mcconnell like the easiest example is like um obama wasn't allowed to have a justice and like nothing happened to him over that um to, to mcconnell and like that shit happens all the time where they just flout like loopholes in the law to get away with whatever their agenda is yeah what, and what, what, democrats never fucking do that <laughs> We still have a fucking filibuster. Like when, yeah, when the when the Senate parliamentarian tells Democrats they can't they can't do something in a, in a budget reconciliation bill, they're like, oh, okay. When the Senate parliamentarian tried telling Republicans they couldn't pass something in a reconciliation bill, they fired the parliamentarian. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Like I, I hate doing this because it feels so like milk toast. You know, like it's just they just do this all the time. It's the what what they they accuse their enemies of whatever it is they're doing. Like, yeah, she was even saying that um, well maybe the left is just confident confident that they'll never lose power, and the way things are going, they may well be right. Because they she said controlling the levers of communication. Okay, well how about the lever the levers of electoral politics? Like how the Republicans are gerrymandering the fuck out of had gerrymandered the fuck out of the country, have disadvantaged people from voting. Um, may voting harder for people who wouldn't vote for them. How the uh, Senate overwhelmingly favors Republicans. Yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. So um, Tucker asks Heather McDonald about her her information diet, and she says something I think is going to just shock you. Do you notice this divide in your own life? You've lived in New York. You spent a lot of your life in New York. You're an academic. Um, and you know you worked at a think tank for a long time, so you know a lot of people who disagree with you. Do you still talk to them? Do they listen to you when you talk? Do you listen to them? I frankly am somewhat in an ideological bubble at this point, with most of my acquaintances being conservative. Wow, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, she goes on to talk about how she has one friend who lives in Europe who is a liberal. And uh, she gets really nervous knowing that that friend reads the New York Times and must think horrible things about her. Um, and she's, and then she goes, and my brother also believes in New York Times. And we just don't talk about politics. Uh, yeah. She gets really fixated on the New York Times. Like, most people don't read the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, you have to pay a subscription for that shit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like, it, the only reason that I kept um, Microsoft Edge on my computer is so that I can I have an extra browser whenever I run out of free articles on one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's another thing. Like, it's not like the New York Times is, like, a bastion of leftism or something. Like, they're pretty moderate. But liberal democracy looks really far left to Republicans. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um. um so Tucker asked where she went to college. What was the point at which it began to really accelerate? Like, what accelerated this? 
with the Trump presidency obviously accelerated it. I'm not exactly sure how. I just lived here during it. So I, I noticed that the people became much more extreme, particularly on the left. And every study, by the way, you're, of course, familiar with this, shows that they mean it much more. Right. Liberals are much more likely to end a friendship over political differences right. than conservatives. But there was something about Trump, who was not a doctrinaire conservative, didn't actually do all that much that really pushed a lot of people toward the edge. Why? But it was coming a long time. If I have, if I, if huh. I can, if I can sort of shake my finger at the public, I, I have to say, I and others told you so. You know, like I'm not the only one, but I've been warning against the insanity of academic ideology for well, three decades. Yeah. My heart breaks every day. I, I read about the destruction of the humanities, something that I live for, that I think is our greatest gift that we have inherited this yes. civilization of such exquisite eloquence, insight, and beauty, and the trashing that goes on these know-nothing students and their professors uh, daring to use the, the trivialities of race and sex against these works of grandeur. It just, it's outrageous and infuriating. But the, Where did you go to college? I'm sorry to interrupt you. I went to Yale. And I was there at the height of this ridiculous theory called deconstruction in yes. the 70s. However, deconstruction was a Mandarin science. However faulty right. it was about the way language worked, amazingly, nobody cared about race and gender. Right. It believed there was no such thing as the human self, ridiculously, hilariously. But the one advantage of that is nobody could whine about Oh, I'm a female. I just feel so oppressed because females didn't exist either, nor did males. It was just all the tr play of signs. So I got to read Milton and Wordsworth and Spencer and, and, and Alexander Pope without ever thinking to complain that I was reading dead white males. It all happened in the 80s when that came on, this steamroller of hatred towards greatness. Okay, so <laughs> so Tucker says when when did this start? When did when did America start going down the drain for you, Heather McDonald? And Heather McDonald, a Yale graduate, responds when we started listening to academics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every single one of these people is just eating their own tail all the time. <laughs> what the what the fuck is happening? Okay, um, and then bullshit that she didn't say it in these words, but like she's trying to pretend that gender didn't exist when she was in college. Like, fuck you, yeah, it did. Like, <laughs> like trans rights are in vogue right now, but that doesn't mean that they didn't exist before. Yeah, yeah, it, deconstruction. What she's talking about? I'm not gonna. I don't care to go deeply into what deconstruction in the 70s meant in the university setting. Yeah. But, but the essentially it was this idea that um language can't perfectly articulate what you're trying to say. It can only be like an approximation of it. And so any like attempt to divine meaning from text or like a work of art is imperfect. And so it leads to a lot of like subjectivist interpretations of meaning, um, okay. which she, we don't need to litigate that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the whole thing. 
even in, even in Tucker's framing there, reality is inverted. So why did Trump seem to accelerate this when he didn't actually do all that much? And I'll agree that like on a policy on like policy wise, as far as like <laughs> from a legislative standpoint, Trump was pretty much in effect in an ineffectual buffoon. But he did a lot uh, a lot toward radicalization and a lot toward deepening cultural divisions in the country. And it's like, gee, when somebody is constantly spouting inflammatory rhetoric and hammering at our deepest divisions, why might that divide the country further? I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what really stuck out to me in that clip was Heather, Heather McDonald talking about how the greatest thing that we inherited was this, this tradition of the humanities and people, the, these university professors are daring to use the quote trivialities of race and gender to criticize these great works um, of Western civilization. And she, she calls it um, uh, a hatred of greatness. She, she isn't saying it so much, but she like, if you spend time in pretty extremist white identity circles, you'll, you'll see a lot of talk like this about, um, everything good about civilization was created by white Europeans and mainly white European men. And um, they they passed down all these, all these great traditions and these powerful works of works of art that modern society often through cultural Marxism is trying to denigrate with, with the trivialities of race and gender studies. So I, I, Given everything you know about Heather McDonald and the kind of company she keeps for the Manhattan Institute, I'm guessing that she's pretty close to that kind of ideological sphere. <laughs> yeah, um, I um, I didn't catch that the first time either. But when you said it again, um, saying that race is trivial is a very white thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It... <laughs> Race is trivial to me. Someone who has never, whose whose life has never been negatively impacted by their race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who said it, but um, it, it's come up a lot for me this week for some reason. What um, that being, being apolitical, like being disinterested in politics, is a privilege. Like you can't, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of that. And I, th- I thought, yeah. Yeah. Put, put, put a pin in that idea because we're going to come back to that pretty shortly. Ooh, I, I added something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she isn't done talking about how much she hates these dumb college students. <laughs> okay. And it has never slowed down. Where did that come from? It came from a narcissism. Uh, of the failed, the it's a hatred of a civilization deemed too white and male. Uh, there, it grew out of this the tragic pendulum swing within the Black Civil Rights Movement that was for so long striving for the ideals that America was itself violating, but. You know, I, it's heartbreaking to see these pictures I've said recently of Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington dressed to the nines, living up to the highest range of civilization at a time when America was cruelly denying them opportunity. 
And then we had this one moment. There was a real dignity in that. A dignity and a, a nobility. Yes. And then it all swung past and you got the oppositional culture of the ghetto and hip hop that came up that now, now all that striving for bourgeois normalcy is gone and you have the glorification of gangster culture, which is tragic. But so I think the, the black radicalism drove a lot of this uh, and the, the growth of racial preferences, the dismantling of single standards of evaluation that began in the 60s with, with preferences for admission. Then the females glommed onto that, you know, with, with feminism and their marginalization of males. And since then, the glorification of victimhood. So there was a lot of dog whistling there. <laughs> yeah. I really, really hate the idea that Tucker said that there's a dignity in your existence being legally questionable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a. And what she said there, so how you used to see Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington dressed to the nines and reaching for like the highest echelons of bourgeois civilization. What she's saying is that that's what the black community should be striving for. And uh, glorification of quote gang culture is a refutation of that. And that's why black communities have degraded. So her, her view of where racial problems and inequities come from is that black people just aren't trying hard enough to aspire to homogenize into white culture. Yeah. And I, what I heard was just like extremely patronizing, like, Oh, look at those little black people. They're trying so hard to look white. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, it, this is a very old school of racism. It's just like drop the ghetto culture and just be more like white people and you'll be more successful. Yeah, and and Tucker <laughs> Tucker saying like, oh, it's dignified, like like it's like someone's kid that you don't like, but they dressed up or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's very patronizing. Very, I don't know, quietly evil. <laughs> yeah, it it it's it's patronizing and infantilizing and it 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 really is like just kind of supremacist to its core in that the the right way to be is to just be more like your oppressors and then we'll stop being oppressed if you're if you act like that yeah (laughs) It's, it's it's fucked up yeah um and then she goes into this complaining about the the veneration of victimhood and this is something that you hear all the time from people on the right of victimhood yeah. culture and everybody gets points for being a victim. I, I just, I, I want to point out how not new this idea is. Um, <laughs> so in the year 1937, Bertrand Russell wrote an essay called the superior virtue of the oppressed. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> quote from that essay. One of the persistent delusions of mankind is that some sections of the some sections of the human race are morally better or worse than others. The, this belief has many different forms, none of which has any rational basis. 
It is natural to think well of ourselves, and thence, if our mental processes are simple, of our sex, our class, our nation, and our age. But among writers, especially moralists, a less direct expression of self-esteem is common. They tend to think ill of their neighbors and acquaintances, and therefore to think well of the sections of mankind to which they themselves do not belong. A rather curious form of this admiration for groups to which the admirer does not belong is the belief in the superior virtue of the oppressed, subject nations, the poor, women, and children. And he goes on to explain how ridiculous this is. Uh, (laughs) So (sighs) there is nothing new under the sun with these people. They're recycling talking points from at least 1937. Jesus Christ. And whatever quote-unquote points you get for being a victim in modern culture, it does not equal the privilege of not being an oppressed person. Like, (laughs) there's not parody there. I don't think that this, like, points system actually exists. Like, I, I think, like, these are people who are measurably disenfranchised or dis... Uh, um, not disenfranchised, but, like, um, discriminated against. Um, and we want fair lives for those people. It's not that they're getting points. It's that they have more things that need to be redressed about society in order for their lives to be fair. Yeah, and and what what they're talking about when when they say that you get points for being a victim, it's like wanting a redress for wrongs done to you, and or, or at least like acknowledgement and visibility of of that having been a part of your life. So where somewhere where I see this a lot is when people are like, um, I, I don't understand gay pride because. how can you be proud of something if you were born that way you didn't even do anything and it's like well obviously that's not what pride means being gay isn't an achievement but living in a society that is often hostile toward you and even dangerous for you and being open about the the parts of yourself that make you a, a victim of that oppression that's what people are talking about when they say pride you know and so and I would ask that person how many American flags they own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the the point I'm making here is that like when Heather McDonald complains about people glorifying their victimhood, what she's responding to is just people trying to be heard and create a more equal society. She wants she wants those things to remain invisible and just you know, be more like the bourgeois ruling class, dress to the nines and act more like your oppressors and everything will be okay. Yeah. I thought this was going to be a totally different conversation because she started by, by talking about like, quote, the failed. And I thought it was going to turn into like an actually interesting discussion, like how um, I, I would describe like Jordan Peterson fans as like the failed some people online call them like fail sons or something, but like there's people who feel like they've been failed by society. But what she really meant was black people failed to acquire full civil rights for their race. I think. Yeah. yeah and that's a, that's a really weird thing to say. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that I'm glad you pointed that out because that was something I, I latched onto as well was um she said that the this this kind of anti-white mentality comes out of a narcissism of the failed, which again ties into 
what she's expressing in that like things outside of kind of mainstream bourgeois Protestant white culture are inferior. And so it, if you're having worse outcomes because your culture is inferior, what you should do is assimilate to white culture. And if you don't, and you think that you deserve to be rewarded, even though your culture is bad, that's narcissism of the failed. It's, (laughs) this is a very fucked up worldview. Very racist. Yeah. (laughs) I think what's valuable about looking at Heather McDonald is that I think this is a view that a lot of people hold, but can't articulate. And she's a very clear articulator of this worldview. Yeah. If people were just more like me, then they'd be doing fine. If they just did what I did. Yeah. Like it in being able to kind of narrate the unconscious biases of a lot of people, then it it, it gives us specific points that we can refute and maybe do something about those biases. But yeah, they they're almost off this university tick, but they have a bit they have a little bit of a ways to go yet. righty, let's do it. Now, one could say, where did that come from? Where did we sort of become a culture that says we we venerate those who claim to be weak and oppressed and give them all the power, which is a paradox? One argument is that was, as Nietzsche would say, that was Christianity that reviled the classical values of heroism and power and and warfare for better or worse, you know, saying. Well, certainly that ideology kind of was seamlessly adopted by mainstream Protestant denominations. Right. There really is no difference between social justice activism and the Episcopal Church at this point. Episcopal Church was a huge part. Well, helped build America. Right. The National Cathedral is an Episcopal Church. uh, And they kind of fell for it without even thinking about it. Yeah. That seemed like a big change. Yeah. That's uh, that, that's something Tucker talks about a lot because um, he's an Episcopalian and he feels betrayed because he thinks the Episcopal Church is too woke. Um, he talks about that in like pretty much every you know you've ever seen him do. To be honest, okay, yeah, <laughs> I I was kind of confused where that came from, so I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that's a pet project of his, and um, what's interesting is that I I think he I think he might have been obfuscating Heather McDonald's point a little bit because Heather McDonald, she's a fairly big voice in this um, conservative atheist movement. You you can find a lot of different profiles for kind of advocating for a conservative non-religious worldview or a secular conservative worldview. She is like a, a official friend of this conservative atheist society. And so I think well, she, she, she's referencing Mayor Nietzsche's criticism of Christianity, which the, the the criticism of Christianity that she's describing, Nietzsche kind of outlined this both in on the genealogy of morals and in and in a separate publication called The Antichrist. I have not read The Antichrist, but I have read on the genealogy of morals. And there, what's kind of explained as this this critique of Christianity is that. Nietzsche believes that kind of the the fundamental force that drives human beings is this will to power. And Christianity initially became popular among slaves in the Roman Empire. And so when you're when you're a slave and you you have no like personal power, no real autonomy, but you're you're still as a human driven by the will to power, then what you have to do to 
give your life meaning, you have to engage in this transvaluation of moral values. So the will to power gets sublimated in in way in the way that like um, poverty becomes a virtue and excessive wealth becomes a sin. Meekness becomes a virtue and like aggression and dominance and pride becomes a sin. Because if you have no means of actually attaining power, then you have to invert your lack of power into a moral good. Nietzsche calls Christianity slave morality because the slaves then transvaluate these these um, these impulses to the will to power into I am virtuous by being by being enslaved, and my enslavers are non-virtuous, and so that that kind of forms the basis of Nietzsche's critique. What Heather MacDonald is saying here is that it's the same thing with this uh, narcissism of the failed, that because, say, Black Americans haven't been able to achieve the same levels of generational wealth as white Americans, they then have to engage in this transvaluation by which their oppression makes them the heroes of the story, and the success of white Americans is is a, a, a sin. So if that is if that's the basis that she's working off of, if that's how she views the world, then I I can see like how she gets from A to B as far as her like fucked up beliefs. Here it just kind of be- gets gets transmuted into this might makes right and white culture has all the might and all the wealth. So clearly we're right and you need to be more like it. That was a bit of a tangent on my part. But <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. And then she has another diagnosis for what's so wrong with America. All right. Well, and we also have, of course, the rise of youth culture, which was created by the unfathomable prosperity of the West. There's never been a time in human history where adolescents had spending power. Think of this. Adolescents, they're idiots. They don't know a thing. <laughs> and yet the 50s, we were so rich in America that they could have money taken by their parents. And so you had corporations sensing a new market. And so you had the growth of youth culture, rock and roll, you know, all the magazines. And so, and then the veneration of youth and, and the flipping of Confucius ideals. It's not the, you know, the elderly that we respect for their wisdom. It's youth that are young. And so you had the 1960s, the flower power, the glorification of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And and now the adolescence of, of narcissism and thinking everything revolves around itself. It is a fundamentally adolescent culture that we have now that doesn't understand trade-offs, risk, benefit, like look at COVID. We have not had the, we've not had mature decision makers to say everything's a trade-off. We yeah. cannot shut down civilization for one particular type of risk, which we're grotesquely overestimating anyway, but we have to make sane trade-offs. Instead, we say, oh my God, COVID, shut everything else down. That is not an adult responsibil- uh, response to something. We're still on the whole why society is in decline thing, aren't we? We've been here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they uh this is this is big for them <laughs> okay so i'm not a history buff but i remember studying 
when youth culture first came around and it was like 1920 ish the decade of 1920 so her coming on and saying that youth culture is new and that's why society is declining is because kids have spending money and they're idiots. Um, she's like a hundred years late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it th- this exchange was just really revealing to me in that, like, this is just like some grumpy old person complaining about the kids. <laughs> like, it's the damn whippersnappers. Yeah. <laughs> um, like the k- kids are idiots. Oh, brilliant insight. Um, yeah. n- nobody has ever pointed that out before. <laughs> and, and then it's still like, oh, the flower power in the 60s is really the root of all our problems. It's like, get a new talking point. My God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Beyond just how trite all of that is, I actually think that she is butting up against a half-decent critique of capitalism in that um, capitalism senses an emerging market in young young people, so then huge parts of our society warp to appeal to that market and extract that spending power from them, and that's enough to, like, change cultural forces in our society uh i i I think that that might be something worth talking about heather (laughs) maybe yeah you'd have to convince me that's a bad thing like i don't care if kids do something stupid like if they're not hurting anyone (laughs) yeah i i frankly i'm just trying to find anything worth talking about in this (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty devoid it's pretty devoid of me (laughs) Um, but this next bit is super fucked up, though. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> what would happen if there was an actual crisis in the country? I mean, COVID's exactly. bad, lots of people died, right. mostly elderly people. But if we had, you know, if <laughs> there was a, well, a war. That's exactly right. We haven't displayed the ability to make wise decisions. All right, so I, I, it is worth pausing there. In the last clip, Heather McDonald was like, oh, we don't venerate the elderly anymore for their wisdom. And that's the problem. And then Tucker was like, I mean, COVID, yeah, I killed a lot of people, mostly old people. It's not that bad. <sighs> and then what if there was an actual crisis? I know we're not through the clip yet, but what the fuck, dude? Yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, which granted, this wasn't true at the time, but just one in 500 Americans are dead. Oh, you're right. I forget that this is old. I was just, um, I was just gonna try to find, yeah, the, the, this what the up to date numbers on. Yeah, this oh, was we, like we pr- cracked 700k. Oh, good for us. Yeah, we're so good. Yeah, this this was pre Delta. Um, but yeah, it to call it not a crisis is was still absurd. Obviously, yeah, we haven't displayed the ability to make wise decisions as I a country. Know. It would be a mystery, but wouldn't you love it, though? Wouldn't you love to send off these sniveling adolescents to war? Of course, (laughs) it wouldn't work. You go, Heather McDonald! (laughs) But, you know, we can't even have drill sergeants anymore because it might help hurt the females. You know, they, they, they just feel so oppressed. So even the military now 
is is completely being feminized. So I don't know how we would fight a hot war. So the debate over whether pregnant women make the best fighter pilots, I guess, would be resolved. Like <laughs> resolved. we know, right? Right, right, right. And, and 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 get them in the combat units where everybody's like beating each other up out of jealousy and, and sexual intrigue. That's really good for combat cohesion. Okay. Um, there's a couple of discussions to have here, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a lot, huh? <laughs> um, okay. So this was several months ago. Um, so we were still uh, very much in a war zone. We, don't, we didn't call it a war, but uh, we've definitely been at war uh, in the Middle East for a long yeah. time. Um, until we pulled out. Thank you, Biden. Um but uh yeah so okay so the the question was what if we had a real crisis like disease or war while we're living through the deadliest disease in a hundred years <laughs> and and still at war <laughs> yeah, um, so, okay <laughs> they're so divorced from the real world it's crazy yeah and then the thing i actually want to talk about what if we just send kids to die because yeah. they're annoying? <laughs> Wouldn't you love to send these sniffling adolescents to war? <laughs> How fucked you up can't is that? send an adolescent to war. They're not adults yet. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it's... And then, like, she she doesn't think that there should be women in the military because then the men will all be beating each other up over jealousy and sexual intrigue, which is just reductive on all counts. Oh. And, and and Tucker's still on his fucking pregnant fighter pilot thing. That was episode four of this show when that first came up. Oh wow, that that is ancient. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so yeah. long ago. Yeah, he's never gonna drop that. No, um, he, do- he fails to understand the difference between necessary and sufficient conditions. Which I think I did in like fourth grade or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like the the bloodthirst here for 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 people who say things that they don't like is insane. Um, and then this is where we get back into what you were talking about earlier, Tyler. Ooh, joy. So it does seem like all of these debates we're having, the debate over whether or not biological gender is real, for example, Uh these are the kind of debates that you have when you can, when you have the freedom, when they're exactly nothing sort of fake nerf debates. Right. When you don't have to argue about, like, what do we do about the food supply? Right. You know, or how do we stop the invasion? If there is an actual crisis, do some of these ridiculous conversations just end? Okay. I got stuck on um, biological gender, which is a thing no one has ever said. <laughs> um, and this is what you were talking about with like being disengaged from politics as a privilege. Yes. Um, if politics doesn't really affect like Tucker's life is not materially different now than it was under Trump, than it was under Obama, than it was under Bush. No. Like, when when day to day like politics doesn't affect you when you're not dependent on like the social safety net or a stimulus check or unemployment insurance you, you know it yeah so, so on so forth or if you're not legally allowed to use a public bathroom <laughs> yeah like when you're not affected by politics then it, you you have room to be aloof about it and yeah um and so he he called them fake nerf debates and like 
it might not be consequential to you, but for trans people, the debate over whether or not, quote, a biological gender is real is not a nerf debate. Like the, the trans people have high rates of victimization, uh, high rates of being like victims of violence and an extraordinarily high suicide rate compared to the general population. Yes. Like, this is a very real issue that affects these people. These are not fucking nerf darts. Very literal life or death situation for the Yeah. But T- Tucker and Heather, they're focused on the real issues of the day, Tyler. They, they're not interested in those fake nerf debates. They want to talk about the important stuff. So keep, <laughs> keep that the fuck in mind for this next clip. All right. So you think so clearly, I have to ask, and you made reference to electronic devices being a distraction and, and God knows what effect they're having on us, even physiologically. I have to ask, since you're clearly not affected, but what is your day like? What is your routine like? How do you, no, a sincere question. I mean, to the extent you routine, I am very routine, or I am, I am unfortunately driven by a rigid routine, and it all revolves around swimming, which is why I'm in Irvine as long as I am. <laughs> That's great. Your life <laughs> revolves pool, around swimming. It does. My pool in New York is insane. Its rules are just unworkable. And there is no way I'm going back until my pool in New York returns to normalcy until then. So it all begins with swimming. I, I swim first thing in the morning. You've taken us to a place I didn't expect to be. <laughs> really? What would you really? expect? Well, I'm not sure. I, what I, I didn't. I, didn't Times, I, I read five newspapers. No, I don't. No. Well, that's why I'm interested, because I rarely talk to someone who can synthesize so many different ideas as clearly as you do. <laughs> And so you ask yourself, well, okay, why don't I talk to more people like that? Maybe because they're not living the way that Heather McDonald lives. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, ser- well, I'm yeah. serious. So well, let me say, I got to ask you, what rules are you talking about that drove you out of New York at your pool? They limit you to, at most, you're allowed in the water. If you're lucky, if you get it, like right at the moment, 47 minutes, I swim for an hour and 10. So, and then they flush everybody out and you have to do this little, this little routine walking around the pool with your mask on. And uh, the sign up, you have to sign up at 5 a.m. If you're lucky to get a 5 a.m. slot every single morning, you have to go on the computer at 5 a.m., which is insane. I, I don't know what these people are thinking. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a let, not surprising. It's a female dominated institution. You know, it's all it's all run by females. They all think of themselves as very woke, as having sort of a lady bountiful agenda. And so I don't know if they'll ever go back to normal swimming. Yeah, the real problem in society is that people don't swim in the morning. My pool. My, <laughs> my pool's rules are too strict. They had to move to California. And I'm not going back to New York until my pool goes back to normal. <laughs> uh, says a person with the wealth and privilege to live in either location on a whim. <laughs> I, I'm i not going to lie to you, Tyler. I spent a while trying to find what pool in New York Heather McDonald was going to so I could find the rules online. Um, <laughs> I, 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 was, I wasn't able to, I'd, but if anybody has a lead on like what pool Heather McDonald uses in New York, I would love to <laughs> look into it. <laughs> um. But she said they limit you to 47 minutes, which is a weird time constraint. That is a weird time constraint. Um, I wonder if that's not even COVID related and just because it's a really busy pool. Yeah. Because it's in New York. 
yeah it, I, I i don't know that seemed a little bit hard to disentangle to me but <laughs> yeah um she goes on to talk about how beautiful her pool in Irvine is um, and the ducks hop in and swim with you. And she's like, a, a duck will hop in and then it'll hop out. And I wonder, but what was the impetus? What made you decide to hop in when you didn't? What made you decide to get out when you did? And, and then she tells Tucker that she writes a poem every day. Um, and he really wants to talk about that. And she really doesn't want to. She's like embarrassed about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it, it's It's a little bit cute. And so I didn't cut it because that's not what we do here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not misery, we don't want it. <laughs> Our audience comes here for abject misery, goddammit. <laughs> yeah. And just to leave nothing um implied, it is so ridiculous to to expect people who are struggling to make rent to make time in their day to go swim at a public pool and write poetry or whatever in order to make their lives better. That's not the problem. The problem is they can't afford rent. Yeah. It's again, it's, it's, it's a privilege to have that kind of leisure time to think more clearly about the world. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you can't just move 3000 miles away to find a different pool with new rules that you like better. (laughs) Yeah insane oh man um so then they're done talking about decay or decline because now tucker wants to talk about disorder you're one of the smartest maybe the single smartest analysts of disorder just because you've spent so much time studying it so i i just want to put up for the few people who've been living in a foreign country for the last year uh just a montage of some of the chaos particularly the violence aimed at police officers and get your take on what this portends. Here we go. So he, uh, he, he plays this, like um, this montage of uh, protesters, like yelling things at police. Um, interestingly, he, he describes this as like violence against police, but they're it's just they're about all... to say, <laughs> yeah, but it's all just people yelling at cops. And like the one time that there is a physical confrontation in this montage it's when a girl spits on a cop and then he like grabs her and shoves her into a brick wall. Ah, a reasonable reaction. (laughs) So to that threat on your life. Yeah. So as far as examples of violence against police, he's maybe like 0.5 for five. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, don't spit on people. It's rude, but like it's, it's pretty weak. It's not violence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after this, Heather has some things to say about law and order. Executive produced by Dick Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> so what's so interesting about that is a lot of the angriest people there are clearly not people who've been targets of police brutality. They're the son of an, you know, an orthodontist from Westchester. Yeah. What are they so mad about? It's just incredible. It's uh, these people are spoiled to death. They they've been given license to act out this fantasy of of anti-bourgeois rebellion and they know that everything's going to hold together. Well, they're wrong. Americans are very naive about civil anarchy. We think we can play with fire endlessly of of uh, exacerbating 
ethnic and racial tensions and that we're not going to end up like Rwanda, uh, that we've, you know, and they don't even know. So I love this idea that you don't know history. (laughs) They don't know history. My God. Here, how about about this? How about instead of assigning Robin DiAngelo and and Kendi and uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates for freshman reading, how about they assign the Gulag Archipelago? You know, how about they see... It's too long, Heather. Okay, well, just excerpt it. You just excerpt about the torture and the arrest, you know? They have no clue about the abuses that are possible by government and what how precious is this thing of constitutional government that we have developed thanks to Anglo-American effort for centuries. They think they can play at play with this little, oh, I'm such a revolutionary anarchist. It's just extraordinary. The co- what's going to happen? No more cops, no more policing. You attack an officer. You're not just attacking an individual. That's bad enough. You are attacking the very possibility of civilization. This is why people understand this, are terrified every time it happens and why they target officers, because yeah. they stand for law and order. And Law and order, obviously, to the left has this racist echo dog whistle. It's a racist dog whistle. But it has a perfectly legitimate meaning that we will regret when we lose it and, and, and we'll have a pure civil war. For a second, I thought that they got it. For a second, I thought they were like, what are these rich people mad about they they're doing just fine they have privilege so they don't need to be mad and then it is actually but then they turned it into these people aren't towing the class line those idiots yeah yeah you 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 this is going to create problems for your own class you you fools (laughs) yeah i'm just imagining these people in like 1750 (laughs) Well, later than that, you know, revolutionary era, and they would just be writing for the newspaper like, what are these revolutionaries doing? The the royalty has done nothing but benefit them. If it weren't for the royalty, we wouldn't have this country in the first place. Yeah. yeah. We wouldn't have this territory in the first place. It's like, <laughs> maybe we want something better and different that <laughs> that works for more people instead of just a certain subset of people. Yeah, it, Jesus. it's it's wild. It's uh, it, it's fascinating to me the way she's like these people who are protesting police have no idea about the abuses that are possible at the hands of the government if we get rid of police. One, why are they protesting police, Heather? <laughs> it's because of the abuses that are possible at the hands of the state. And yeah, spoken like someone who has never had a violent confrontation with the police. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the entire point of police protests is because they're often arms of state-sponsored abuse. Yes. And she just wants to protect a system that protects her from abuse generally. Mm -hmm. And then Tucker wants to know about, wants to know more about like, well, why are rich people on board with this? So why does Delta Airlines and Apple and Amazon and all these companies that have thrived in the United States because of our justice system and the fact that we actually do have law and order and this robust civil society we have, and of course, all the wealth, why would they support the destruction of the society that made their businesses possible? 
I have two answers. One, wives. Number two, college graduates. Oh, come on. (laughs) Good, I'm glad we have time for you to unpack both of those. Let's start with wives. What does that mean? These CEOs, and thank God they're still mostly male, all have wives. Women are the most uneducated and and left-wing, praised to left-wing ideology, and they're pushing their husbands left. Uh, they're the least informed women. I mean, this is psychology. Psychiatry has known this. Is this going to be censored out? Are we going to censored censor- out? Are you kidding? <laughs> this is going to be if, if this were if I were writing a magazine piece, this would be the lead. <laughs> Come on. This is what because you're James- right. Yeah. What we really need is a entire class of self-hating women who won't try to pull their who won't try to get their husbands to do something that helps them. Okay. Okay. So what Tucker said and what he was actually asking was different. He said, why do corporations support the destruction of the country? Um, And what I think he really was asking is why do corporations support liberal politics? (laughs) Um, And the answer to that question, Tucker, is because most people in this country are liberal and they want to expand their customer base as widely as they possibly can. That is good for them. If you knew anything about the systems for which you advocate, you would understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, (laughs) the whole woke corporations thing is obviously like cynical and it's yeah. uh, But, but at the same time, like, I don't know, I, I would rather like it, it's better than them not doing it, I guess. Yes. And yes, it is. I, th- I think the reason that Tucker is so threatened by it is because it is like he, he knows that these are organizations motivated entirely by profit. And the fact that if the more they, they've determined the more profitable approach is to kind of pay lip service to these progressive causes is a sign that he his side is losing and that's why that's why this is so alarming for them that's some Um, good insight i think you're probably right about that but uh that it's only because zuckerberg's wife (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's okay so reductive and dumb yeah did she even bring up college graduates did i miss that uh I, th- I thought they just hated women for a couple minutes. Yeah, I think she's going to elaborate on that. I'm honestly not positive. Um, it, whatever, because she gets kind of lost. Yeah, it was wives and college graduates that she that she didn't like. Yeah, she gets a bit lost in this next elaboration. Okay, good to know. This is what got James Damore fired. Why? Because he was invoking what psycho- psychology has known for decades. It is not controversial. In the field of psychology, they have the big five personality traits. This was known for decades. One of those big five personality traits, which is a way of describing populations generally, is neuroticism. Poor little innocent computer scientist, wonky Asperger's autistic James Damore at Google (laughs) made the mistake of invoking science in his 10-page memo to Google employees in August of 2018, and he said females rank higher on neuroticism. Uh-oh, that started everybody off, but he was right. Neuroticism means you're risk-averse, you're easily frightened, you're not competitive, you're not aggressive. 
females way dominate on the neuroticism uh, uh, axis of the big five personality traits. Males are more aggressive, risk-taking, entrepreneurial. So the CEOs, the, the females are driving every institution that they've taken hold of, especially the universities, is going left uh, because they don't have that risk-taking uh, entrepreneurial drive. So do you, uh, do you remember who James Damore is? Um, she mentioned he was CEO of Google, I think. No, he was a, he was a Google employee. Oh, Google employee. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this was in 2017. This was a big story for a little bit. Okay. Uh, James Damore was a Google employee who wrote this memo. He titled Google's ideological echo chamber. It was in response to a request for a feedback about like, uh, um, like a, a diversity and sensitivity training that Google held. Okay. Um, it, and it, for feedback, James Damore submitted this 10 page memo about how it, essentially Google's um, left leaning bias le- leads to these drives to try and hire more diverse populations and more women. And it's actually detrimental to Google as a whole because uh, people who are skilled in in uh, tech and coding jobs aren't equally represented in like female and minority populations. And so if you are trying to recruit with parity, then you're recruiting people who aren't as good at the job. His argument goes a bit further than that, but that's the, that's the main thrust of it. I, I, I read his memo for this and I will say it is remarkably well formatted. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was a pleasure to look at. Um, <laughs> He's good at one thing. He claims that he tried to be like nonpartisan, um, but there are a couple of indications that he uh, he he maybe is a bit um, has some predilections toward the right. For example, a- after this story blew up and he was when he was being fired by Google because he violated their code of conduct. Um. The first two interviews that he gave about the matter were to Jordan Peterson and Stefan Molyneux. So an open white nationalist and a closed white nationalist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also included in the footnotes of the memo, there was this. uh, Communism promised to be both morally and economically superior to capitalism, but every attempt became morally corrupt and an economic failure. As it became clear that, that the working class of liberal democracies was going to over, overthrow their capitalist oppressors, the Marxist intellectuals transitioned from class warfare to gender and race politics. The core oppressor-oppressed dynamics remained, but now the oppressor is the white straight cisgender patriarchy. So that's just cultural Marxism stuff. Yeah. There's actually a, a really good Wired article that deconstructs this whole memo. It's by um, Megan Mulpini and Adam Rogers. but. A few of the main points. So to support his claim that men and women think differently, DeMore cites a paper from 2008 called Why Can't a Man Be More Like a Woman? Sex Differences and Big Five Personality Traits Across 55 Cultures. The paper was written by a team of researchers led by David Schmidt, a psychologist at Bradley University in Illinois. The study does show that women rate higher than men in neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. The issue is the extent of those differences. In his memo, DeMore is dramatically overestimating the size of these differences. David Schmidt, the lead psychologist in the paper that DeMore cited, 
disputes Damore's interpretation of his research. Quote from Schmidt, these sex differences in neuroticism are not very large, with biological sex perhaps accounting for only 10% of the variance. The other 90%, in other words, are the result of individual variation, environment, and upbringing. Schmidt also doesn't believe that the results of his research can be used to predict population-level effects of personality differences. Quote, It is unclear to me that the sex difference would play a role in success within the Google workplace. In particular, not being able to handle stresses of leadership in the workplace. That's a huge stretch to me. So this is the the researcher who Damore cited as evidence saying that Damore used his research incorrectly. (laughs) Wow. And that's amazingly not the only time that that happened. (laughs) Damore also cites social sciences research to try and make the argument that men prefer more thing-oriented professions, whereas women prefer more people-oriented professions. To prove this point, Damore cites the work of another researcher, Dr. Richard Lippa, a psychologist at Cal State Fullerton. Here's a quote from Lippa. On average, and I emphasize that, on average, men are more interested in thing-oriented occupations and fields, and that difference is actually quite large. I would assume that women in technical positions at Google are more thing-oriented than the average woman. So essentially, this population data, this population-level data is irrelevant to the narrow subset that Demore is trying to apply it to. Demore further argues that these differences between men and women are, quote, exactly what scientists would predict from an evolutionary perspective, implying that these differences are rooted in, rooted in evolutionary biology. Today's scientific consensus is skeptical of that line of argument. When it comes to brain biology in particular, experience alters brain structures and functioning. So causal statements about brain differences and success in math and science are circular. Most researchers today point to data that shows cognitive traits differ slightly on average between the sexes, but they change throughout an individual's lifetime, influenced by a mix of genetic, epigenetic, and environmental factors. Damore goes on to make the argument that differences in career preferences between the sexes are explained by exposure to prenatal testosterone. Damore has since doubled down on this. He told a reporter for Bloomberg named Emily Chang, quote, among social psychologists, there's a consensus that prenatal testosterone does affect a lot of personality traits, in particular one's interest in people versus things. Also, in his interview with Stefan Molyneux, he repeated this claim, adding, uh, hormonal exposure explains a lot of differences in career choice. For this, I'm going to quote again from that Wired article. Demore is probably wrong about this, too. The most consistent findings linking prenatal testosterone to sex-linked behaviors come from about a dozen studies examining toy preferences among girls with a condition known as con- congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which causes the overproduction of sex hormones, including testosterone. CAH-affected girls tend to be less interested in dolls and more interested in toys like trucks. But people with C- CAH have other variables. They're often more with ambiguous genitalia and other grave medical conditions, and therefore have unusual rearing experiences. To get around the socialization issue, researchers from Emory University gave toys to young Reese's monkeys. When they saw that the female monkeys preferred plush dolls and males preferred trucks, they concluded that these tendencies must be, high, must be hardwired into sex. But if you squint at this result, you see that it presumes that juvenile Reese's monkeys see stuffed animals as monkey-like and wheeled toys as thing-like. But why would a monkey see a plush turtle as akin to itself? And how would it know what a truck was or was not? Also, the male monkeys play with trucks. The females chose between the two about equally. The logic here walks a twisted path across the floor of the Uncanny Valley. 
Still, most hormone researchers agree that these differences are real, but that they're only linked to pre but that they're only linked to prenatal testosterone, not so much. And to a difference in career choice, there's 100% no consensus on that, says Justin Carr, a psychologist at Nipissing University in Ontario. The human literature on early androgen exposure is really messy. So throughout this whole 10-page memo, James Damore repeatedly and egregiously misrepresents the science to try and make his point that biological differences explain why women are hired more at Google. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) Your interests aren't determined by your sex at birth. Yeah, crazy. Who would have thought? Yeah. And like, so not only that, so not only is he like wrong about the differences or lack thereof between men and women, but also just part of maybe part of the reason that women don't apply to be coders as much as men is because there aren't very many women in the field who get hired. So if Google starts hiring more women, more women will think, oh, I'm interested in that. Maybe I can actually get a job even though I'm a woman. Yeah. Uh, and that has positive societal effects as well. So, yeah, there's a bunch of cultural stuff around this, like the it, what, what's viewed as jobs that are appropriate for women and what's not, or even yeah. like, even like um, prejudices about what kinds of things men and women are better at, which don't really hold any scientific water. Um, like the, the, there are a lot of societal reasons why we might see this disparity that have nothing to do with cognitive ability. And she, she's going to get back to that in a moment, but she takes a little detour here first to talk about how fear of COVID is feminine. <laughs> okay. COVID is basically the embodiment of a feminine attitude towards the world, which is extraordinarily risk averse. And so that's happening. So, so, so you believe the rise in female leadership, which mm-hmm. is real. And, and by the way, is the result of a concerted effort to make it real. Right. Has had an effect on how we've responded to COVID? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the inability. Remember, the greatest moment of Trump's presidency was when he got out of Walter Reed Hospital, got on the on that balcony, took off his mask and said, we have to move on. Yeah. We cannot be dominated by fear. I cannot be in an attic or a bunker. Uh, we have to take risk. The next day, the New York Times had a banner headline. It was the effect of that Trump says we have to accept risk or something. This was an extraordinary moment. Or Trump says we should not be afraid. That was seen as a criticism. If you want to understand the sea change in the American psyche from the 1940s when we fought World War I to now, or the sea change in the Democratic Party... Look at that New York Times headline. If, if FDR had given the only thing we have to fear is fear itself speech today, arguably the New York Times would have said he's violating safetyism. It, it, we now, the, according to the New York Times, we should embrace fear and Trump should be demonized for saying we cannot be afraid. This is extraordinary. If you want to see the exact reversal of those classical virtues of, of heroism and, and risk-taking, it is this, that it is now a virtue to be afraid. I feel like she's close to a conversation that is actually interesting and insightful. And I, I don't want this to sound like I agree with her, 
but it's true that there is some level of danger associated with living your day-to-day life. If you drive a car or if you take a cab or anything, you're, you're at risk of getting in a crash, you know, but we have to choose arbitrarily where to draw the line on what is and isn't an acceptable level of safety. And there's nothing masculine or feminine about valuing your life and not wanting to risk it. And there, and there should be no, the government should not be demanding you risk your life to save the economy or whatever. And that's not, that's not a masculine or feminine thing. Everyone has a right to value their own life. Yeah. And Uh, and in, in, in terms of COVID by nature of being transmissible, it's not just a personal evaluation of risk because you inherently run the risk of infecting other people. And you no one has, you don't have the right to make that decision for anyone else, regardless of your personal calculus for safety. True. And then uh, she goes back to the, she, she gets back to James Demore a little bit here. So as far as the corporations, you have the, the feminization, you have the CEOs and you also have, Again, a, a consumer, a populace, uh, and and they're bringing in all of the college graduates. And so Google fired James Damore because his memo that was just saying it may not be sexism that explains why there's not 50-50 males and females among Google engineers and entrepreneurs. I'll say it's not sexism. It's because at the high end of math skills and at the low end, males dominate. Sorry, folks. It's just the reality. It's Google is bending over backwards to hire as many females engineers as it can. They're not out there at the same range. So, but you have these college graduates that were at Google saying, his memo makes us feel afraid. We're at risk. We feel unsafe because of a memo. Are you kidding me? That, but that's what's going on in every corporation. She's doing the Sam Harris thing. Some people are just smarter than other people, and there's no reason to investigate any causal relationship about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. We, like, we're going to be talking about Charles Murray and Sam Harris a little bit soon. Oh, cool. Um, not, to, not, not today, but in oh, upcoming okay. episodes. Um, but yeah, it, like she's ignoring context here. Like they're... And, and, James Damore was implying that there are biological reasons for these disparities. So she's taking his side. We can only assume that she agrees. Um, There's no evidence to support that at all. In like elementary school math, we don't really see any disparity between how boys and girls perform. It's as you move up through, through grade levels, the math becomes more complex that you start to see these disparities form. It correlates a lot with how girls feel about their ability to do math. Um, like, if you give a questionnaire, do you agree that boys are better at math and girls are better at reading? Girls who agreed with that statement were more likely to do worse at math. Think these things become self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah. And, there are, and there are a lot of areas where this manifests, like um, parents' expectations have a big impact on how children behave. There was a study that showed that girls' acceptance of their own math ability were, were related to whether or not their mothers held gender stereotypes about math. 
And the more mothers thought math was something boys were better at, the worse their daughters felt about their own math abilities. Um, there have also been studies that show teachers might think that girls are less capable of doing math and might even grade, grade their work more harshly. Um, wow, really? And then, and this is especially true in, um, in K-12 through education, where the overall majority of teachers are women. If you look at the subjects that teachers had the most anxiety and least confidence about teaching, it's far and away is math. And um, when, when your teacher might have math anxiety, there's evidence that children are more likely to emulate the behaviors of adults of their same gender. So when girls have female teachers who lack confidence in math, girls are more likely to emulate that. Um, hmm. In uh, in 1990, there was a scientist named Dr. Janet Hyde. She published a meta-analysis on sex differences in mathematical performance among high school students, and she found a significant deficit in girls' abilities. But then when she did the same analysis in 2008, that difference had disappeared. The difference was that in the 1980s, girls in high school didn't take as many years of math as boys did. Today, that gap has been closed, and girls take as many math classes as boys do, so they score just as well. What was once thought of as a serious difference has disappeared. So all of this stuff is culturally bound. There's no reason to believe that women are in any biologically predisposed to be worse at math. Yeah, there's no math gene. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, when my mom gave me like a, a, a sex talk, she used like a book about um, about how gametes connect. And one of the, one of the things was that like the sperm cell was really good at math and really liked swimming. So the, the child ended up being really good at math and really liked swimming. So, <laughs> um, so it's interesting how, how wrong yeah. my education was. <laughs> and if only I'd been a smarter sperm. Yeah, yeah. How, how come my sperm didn't go to four years of college, huh? Like, my, I guess my sperm couldn't grow a beard. <laughs> um, in this clip, Tucker reveals something about his worldview that I found very interesting. And so we get these wonderful moments where the New York Times fires James Bennett, the editorial page editor, because he ran Tom Cotton's op-ed calling for a military response to the riots of 2020 summer. And the New York Times employees, especially the black employees, felt afraid that having run this op-ed, they were scared and they were at risk of their lives. So Bennett had to go, good. They fired their science. Wait, can I just ask, speaking of emasculation, and it's not just Bennett, who I sort of know, you know, nice guy, mm -hmm. not a personal tech, but like someone like Bennett, who did nothing wrong, who's fulfilling the core duties of his job, right. in this case, to like find interesting pieces for your op-ed page. And you get fired for it because you're on the wrong side of some political enthusiasm. Why do you put up with that? Why don't, you, why don't you go into Salzburger's office yes. and say, you know, you, you can fire me. Let me tell you what's going to happen if you do. Exactly. I'm going to go on CNN tonight, and I'm going to talk about your sex life. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about it in great detail as a former employee. No, I mean it. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going to do that because I've got a wife and kids, which he does, I know, because they live near me. And you're hurting them. I know. And you're destroying me, and I'm not going to put up with it. So go ahead and fire me. 
What? Nobody does that. Ask him. I don't know. It's just so amazing. No, I'm, I'm serious. Are you that craven that you think you're going to get another job? Like, why not burn it all down? Burn it all down after you. You have nothing to lose at this point. But nobody does that. Nobody right? does. The apologies, they make you throw up. Okay. Um, so what Tucker said was disgusting. But before that, um, Heather, Heather said something interesting. Um, someone got fired because they allowed Tom Cotton, a senator... Right? He's a senator? Yeah. Okay. Um, to, to publish an article about how we should take military action against BLM? Yes. She didn't say BLM, but she, she said summer 2020 protests so that there yeah, was the, deniability. The, the Black Lives Matter protests, yeah. Um, that's a crime. You can't... You can't respond militarily to a peaceful protest yeah it's crossing the rubicon and all that um it, yeah that that op-ed was super fucked up um do, do i think bennett i mean should bennett have been fired for running it i don't know <laughs> um but tom cotton is certainly shitty for having that view um because that's you know how fascism do yeah but like you know, we live in a corporate capitalist society and they have every right to fire whoever they want for any reason. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but she's, she's tacitly defending that we should go and shoot peaceful protesters. And I don't like that at all. I don't like that. Yeah. That's and not a fan. Like, I wonder if she would have gotten in trouble if she'd said we should go and shoot those BLM protesters because then it would have been too obvious. So they had to, like, you know, that summer one. Yeah. <laughs> to, to obfuscate. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't like. And then Tucker, like, why don't you just blackmail people if they try to fire you? <laughs> <sighs> Tucker Carlson, fan of blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, yeah. that that maybe actually shed some light on how he's still at Fox after all the crazy shit he's pulled. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what he has on Murdoch. <sighs> this next bit is just troubling him um, from like a social standpoint. <laughs> you know, it was the same with the, the science uh, uh, writer who brought us COVID hysteria. Don Mc, whatever his McNeil was, I think. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a, a puling crave an apology as well. Oh, I'm so sorry for mentioning the N-word. It's an important linguistic distinction between use and mention. You use a word to refer to somebody. You're using it against somebody. Mention is when you're quoting it. You are using it as a linguistic object. You were mentioning the word. You were not using it against somebody. Well, he certainly wasn't we conflate. It. We conflate use and mention now. And yet he apologized for it anyway. I I don't know. It's it's pathetic. It is, is that utterly low pathetic. testosterone levels. I mean, they, they've I, dropped I dramatically. Exactly, they have. Is that could well is be. this the fruit of it? I don't know. Or they want to. I don't know. Will their wives beat them up, or if they still want to date? You know, females. It's very hard to find conservative females. I guess I don't know. But their wives not beat them up. But yes, I would just I would burn the place down after I was fired. It would be so fun. 
So every every time and occasionally conservatives somewhat apologize, every apology takes us closer to the abyss. Never apologize. Not for telling the truth. Nope. No. Yeah, we need to say the N-word more so we know who's on our side. <laughs> Those people who apologize for using racial slurs, they just have low testosterone. <laughs> They're afraid their wives will beat them up. What a really look. easy to make fun of a made-up villain. <laughs> yeah, this is such... This is such bullshit. (laughs) Um, And that every apology brings us closer to the abyss. Never apologize. Like, holy shit, Heather. Yeah, I didn't didn't know what to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy controversial, controversial position here. When you do something wrong, you should apologize for it. That is pretty crazy, Troy. I don't know if I can handle... And it was such a truth bomb. But, you know, Heather, she's taking a pretty tough posture here. Like, if I got fired or burned the place down, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm never going to apologize. So you'd imagine she's pretty thick-skinned, right? You would think. Has, I mean, you say things, even when you come on our nightly show, that, you know, people don't like. And I always think, well, you can't really do anything to Heather McDonald because she's quoting data from like the department of justice like she you speak facts right that's your currency but in this age that's no that's you know that's no defense really telling the truth how hard have people tried to shut you down and what do you do when that happens well i'm actually protected because i don't see i think the people at the manhattan institute screen the emails that are directed at me so i'm kind of kept in a bubble um but i i do occasionally see it on on twitter she uh the manhattan institute gives her her own little safe space where they screen the mean emails out Uh, if it was anyone other than heather mcdonald i would care (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny just oh thank god i don't have to see those mean emails (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know also, it's interesting that Tucker trusts DOJ data when it suits him. Yeah. And not yeah. any other time. Yeah, it's either uh, the Department of Justice has, has all these plants they, and they're staging January 6th and trying to incriminate white people or, oh, you know, this one works for me. This is this is truth. This is truthful. Yeah. And you know, it's truth because it came from the DOJ. Yeah. They set up Rudy Giuliani, but also. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they'll they'll get a little bit more into data here. I, I remember I gave a talk at the Yale Federalist uh, Yale Law School Federalist Society several years ago, and was giving the facts about black crime. And you cannot talk about policing today without talking about crime. Policing is a response to crime. To to distinguish the two is completely fallacious. Um, but of course, as we know, there's a taboo on speaking about black crime. So I was giving these students the facts. And I remember somebody in the back of the room said, well, that's just not true. It's just not true. They're just denying it. The homicide statistics is just not true. Homicide statistics are the gold standard. Of you course. can't hide the bodies. Right. No, you know? exactly. It's not. But they would actually deny it. And I've seen that recently in some of my writings. People would say, 
And actually, a law professor in Ohio actually published an op-ed recently in, I think it was the Columbus Dispatch, saying black-on-black crime is a myth. This is a law professor. This is very scary. So these students are getting fed utter lies by people. I don't know. I'm not going to apologize for the facts. I'm never going to do it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to, if it, if I go down with them, that's fine. But uh, the facts are the facts. So I, uh, I, I found that op-ed she was talking about by the law professor in, uh, in the Columbus Dispatch. Um, what was interesting is what she latched onto is him saying black on black crime is a myth. So I thought that that was like the point of the op-ed. That gets a single line in this op-ed, and all he's doing is linking to a page on the on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website. Um, she doesn't really have much to refute the other points in this article, such as both political parties have allotted funds to quote professionalize the police since the 1940s, claiming these allotments would solve racial bias. The reality is that black and black crime is a myth, and that black and white people routinely commit crimes at similar rates, but black people are overwhelmingly targeted for arrest. The reality is that officers spend most of the time on non-criminal calls and that levels of violent crime do not determine rates of police violence. The reality is that 18 new anti-protest laws were introduced in January 2021, and that bills have been introduced at both state and federal level, barring, barring reductions in police budgets. And the reality is that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act currently pending in Congress would not have saved George Floyd's life. Neither will one verdict stop civilian deaths at the hands of police. Instead, voters and politicians alike should confront how often policing reforms have been pursued without success should familiarize themselves with abolition as an urgent needed solution. Too many families have forever lost their loved ones because of our country's over-reliance on policing and prisons. The time for transformative change is now. The only question is whether, whether we will have the will to pursue it. So in light of this week's news that more than half of police killings go unreported and have over the last 40 years, um, I think that this op-ed has become only more relevant. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that Heather McDonald, rather than refute anything within it, it's talking about how scary this one throwaway line in it was. Yeah. How did, how did that come to be? Did she find it and not read it or did she read it and just ignore everything except the one out of context line that helps her case? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pulled a Berenson. <laughs> <laughs> This whole black on black crime thing has been used by these people forever um, to try and whitewash police violence against the black community. Um, the fact is, like, black people are 3.5 times as likely as white people to be killed by the police. It's, it, it's a dramatic escalation. Yeah. And I'm glad you had the data because, like, her, her claim, uh, Heather's claim, that, like, the police are a response to crime and there's no denying that it's like well yeah. not really yeah the the, the most okay. interesting link in that op-ed was about the studies showing um the number of violent crimes that police are responding to does not correlate at all to how often police use violence in response um that was interesting yeah uh there was a report released by the by the department of justice in 2017 it found that of all violent crimes committed between 2012 and 2015, 22.7% were committed by black people, and 63% of those were committed against other black people. This is in comparison to 44% of all violent crimes committed by white people, 57% of which were committed against other white people. 
So according to this data, white people commit crimes against other white people at about the same rate as black people do against other black people. But despite these numbers, people are not discussing white not discussing a quote white on white crime problem. When a white person commits a crime against another white person, it's just called crime. Race isn't a factor, and that's intentional. Using a language like black on black crime perpetuates the myth that interracial violence is specific to the black community, a myth that implies black people are inherently more violent. <sighs> well said. <laughs> and this again, like everything else that she's throwing out, this isn't new. The staticus may use to justify the mistreatment of black people since the abolition of slavery. In nineteen, in I'm sorry, in eighteen ninety six, there was a, a compilation of racial crime data published by a guy named Frederick Hoffman, titled "Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro." Um, this this uh, not off to a good start there. Hoffman wrote. Given the same conditions of life for two races, the one of Aryan descent will prove the superior, solely on account of its ancient inheritance of virtue and transmitted qualities which are determining factors in the struggle for race supremacy. He also presented statistics about prisoners' races with the crimes that they were convicted of, writing, quote, The colored male only too often leads the life of a vagrant, and that the black race has a greater tendency to crime and, and pauperism than, than that of whites. So this was presented as a scientific study, but explicitly used the language of white supremacy and said the violence and crime are within the nature of black people. Um, I shouldn't have to tell you that the the data in this was terrible and out, often outright fabricated, and this was not. <laughs> this is this has been thoroughly debunked, obviously, because it's a bunch of racist propaganda nonsense. Yep. Um, but the the point being made here is that. This is a talking point that's been used since fucking 1896 to try and invalidate. Yeah, to try and invalidate claims of violence against black people. (sighs) All right. (laughs) So then here, Tucker is going to play a clip from uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN and ask Heather what she thinks about it. So people believe things that aren't true because those lies were affirmed endlessly in the mass media, certainly in cable television, the world that I work in. I want to play you one clip. This is, and I don't want to pick on CNN or the correspondent over there or whatever. I used to work there. Um, But this was, this is a clip from a segment that aired after the now famous shooting in Columbus, Ohio, in which two girls, both black, uh, one was trying to stab the other and she was shot by a police officer before she could do that. Here's how one of CNN's primetime anchors responded to that. And you know what the answer is? You really do. You don't like it. I don't like it. It scares me. Shootings, gun laws, access to weapons. Oh, you, I know when they'll change. Your kids start getting killed. White people's kids start getting killed. Smoking that doobie that's actually legal probably in your state now, but they don't know what it was. And then the kid runs and the pop, 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 pop. Cop was justified. Why'd you run? Oh, he had a baseball game tonight. Oh, the white kid. Oh, big family. That house over there. Those start piling up. What is going on with these police? So my sense is that almost every word of that was a lie. It was intentionally dishonest in an effort to divide the country along racial lines to whip up baseless fears and make Americans hate each other. That's my response. What's your response to that? Okay, so right at the very end, uh, he 
really caught me off guard there. He was expressing an opinion. And I don't, how do you, how do you prove that someone is lying? If they're <laughs> yeah. just, Hey, this is what I believe about the world. Um, yeah. So that was weird. Um, kind of seems like you're just being belligerent for no reason, Tucker. Are you getting yeah. defensive? <laughs> like he, he, he didn't say anything that could be a lie. It was just, I, I think that if police killed more white kids, that we would see more calls for police reform. Like, it, the, yeah. I mean, whether you agree or not, that's one thing, but it's, it, yeah. Yeah. And, and like, it, even if it were wrong, that wouldn't make it a lie in this context. It's just, he, that's what he thinks will happen. Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah. I think uh, Chris uh, Cuomo is probably right there uh, that if white people started dying, uh, that would, then everyone would panic. I mean, well, like, look at um, look at the opioid crisis compared to the 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 crack crackhead epidemic, and like the how much more empathy society responded with, and how much more seriously the federal government took the issue, because like the opiate crisis affects white people. Yeah, yeah. I would say that he's actually right, but he doesn't know what his actual reference is, because I have said this for a long time now. The only thing that is going to change the war on cops is when white kids are getting killed. <laughs> so you're looking at it from the opposite. The drive by shootings that the press turns its eyes away from last year, four dozen black children gunned down in their beds in their front yards, at barbecues, at birthday parties, sitting in their parents' car. Not a single one of those dead black bodies say their names was protested by Black Lives Matter. They were not covered by CNN. If white kids start getting gunned down in these insane, brutal, savage, uh, out-of-control drive-by shootings, then we will see CNN and the New York Times start paying attention to what happens when you demonize the cops. Right. So you, what you're saying is uh, such a smart point, not surprisingly, you're saying is that the violence will not awaken the country to the threat of cops, but to the threat of criminals. Right. Right. Is she trying to tell me that CNN doesn't cover violent crime? What she's saying is that what if black... Like, once we get rid of cops and then black people start killing white kids, then we'll want the cops back. Like, I I don't know what else he can do with that. That's just profoundly racist. Yeah. God. Okay. Okay. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I mean, every time you turn on CNN or MSNBC now, you get some gripe about how terrible it is to be black and how whites are the enemy in this country and they're to blame for everything. And uh, that's just, it's not the case. You know, there has to be a serious conversation about the pathological inner city culture that is creating the problems. And uh, nobody wants to talk about that. So instead we've got this, this, this phantom narrative going on about, well, it's somehow white people that are to blame. And, and, why do conservatives do this all the time? They they take they say like one thing that's like truthful and then they add three other things that aren't. <laughs> so so like 
it's she she started with it's hard to be black in this country and then moved to it's white people's fault that it's hard to be black in this country and no one is saying that they just made that part up yeah like it is hard to be black in this country it's not because of some individual or group of individual white people's fault it's because the system is set up in a way blah 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 blah. we've been over it (laughs) yeah it's it it's literally centuries of uh a culture that was dominated by a hierarchy that put white males at the top mm-hmm. and then building systems consciously or unconsciously that preserved that hierarchy. And um, like to, to the, ex- it's, it's debatable that the inner, okay. It's not true that like black populations commit significantly more crimes than white populations, but the, mm-hmm. It, th- there are cases where the nature of those crimes are maybe different and more concentrated in inner cities. And yeah. to the, and to the extent that that's true, it's largely a function of the lingering effects of redlining and segregation, as well as the um, poverty um, and a lack of opportunity to get out of poverty by any uh, legitimate means. Right. So it, it just, it's it's not a quote pathological inner city culture. That's just you being a fucking racist. Yeah, yeah. And then oh, and there's like implications that they don't always say out loud. So like, it's hard to be black. It's white people's fault that that black people's lives are hard, and you should feel guilty for being white. I think Tucker makes that leap like almost every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm just noticing that like that's how they get there. Is like they say something that's like measurable and true, and then add five steps to get to where they want the conversation to be. He needs to take a true premise and and then lead you to a fake conclusion to invalidate the premise. Yeah. Um. So then, th- this is our last clip, and it's also our longest one. But um. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it uh, it, this is this is the closing of their their conversation. Heather throws out a bunch of propaganda bullshit here. All right. You know, it was interesting. Immediately after the uh, Bryant shooting, I think conservatives were naive enough that they thought, "Oh, well, now we know we know for sure that there was a homicide in progress here." So everything's going to be fine. Life was saved. Yeah. And it kept going. So the degree of of excusing and normalizing of black violence is now to the point where it's okay to stab somebody. Even that's going to be turned into the white supremacist narrative. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan talked about defining deviance down. We've got that now at a huge in fact, I, Don Lemon had on this Philip Atibagoff, who's a, a police act. Uh, he runs an a anti-police organization called the Center for Policing Equity under the auspices of John Jay College in New York. And he was complaining about the fact that if you ask, well, how could this have been any given police shooting been avoided by maybe not resisting arrest? People say that as 
you're blaming the victim. So we can't even talk about that any longer, that that scene is justifying the killing. So there is nothing that can be said now about the behavior of somebody who's committed a crime and is now resisting arrest that can be said. So everything is, the responsibility lies exclusively with the cops. And of course, the cops need more tactical training. They're desperate for tactical training. Instead, you have the Biden administration saying more taxpayer dollars for implicit bias training, which is such a complete fraud and an insult to the intelligence of cops. It's political indoctrination. Complete. And, and these cops, I sat in on one of these trainings in Chesterfield, Missouri, outside of Ferguson, and it was all about police racism, this police racism, that... And, you know, you can't race, no racial profiling. They're not racial profiling. They're simply going where the crime is. And, and one guy said, well, here's my problem. We just had a mass shooting in a theater with like 20 people shot in Missouri. And the press won't even talk about that. Like, what am I supposed to do? Or 70% of the shoplifting in my community is black, even though we're 2% white. I worry about the racial profiling narrative says we can't make arrests. What's going to happen? We know what's going to happen. Theft goes through the roof. Um, Stores close. Right. Yeah. Everybody, everybody opts out. We've seen that. We saw it. There was a wave of this in the 70s, as you remember well. Right. Heather McDonald, that was so interesting. Interesting is one word for it. Yes. Yeah, so there, there is a whole lot in that. Um, yeah. But the... All that it boils down to is that, oh, oh, boo-hoo, poor cops. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, her thing about police need more tactical training. The kind of tactical training they get comes from fucking guys like Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, who calls what he teaches cops killology and teaches <sighs> and teaches that they should approach every traffic stop like a like life or death situation. Mm-hmm. So it. No, we we really don't need any more of that shit, Heather. And they always go back to the cops just go where the crime is. But like, if that were true, and if everyone were equal, which we know they are, um, then you would would not expect such like you wouldn't you wouldn't expect black people to be three times more likely to die or. Ten times more likely to get arrested or whatever it is. I don't know what the actual number is. Yeah, I think uh, I, I believe it's six times as likely to be be arrested for a drug charge. Yes, yeah, six um, times. So when when black and white people use drugs at similar rates, like you, yeah. if, if police are just going where the crime is, you wouldn't see these disparities when the disparities in crime commission don't exist. Right. Yeah. So that uh, that that's Tucker's interview with Heather McDonald. <laughs> that was a doozy yeah um i thought i thought this would be a bit uh a, 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 a nice transition as we move into this um white genocide <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because she was the one that on our show first introduced white genocide to our lexicon um way back in february and uh <laughs> She's really been left in the dust by that narrative now. Her her brand of racism is no less toxic, but certainly of like an older strain, I think, than what Tucker is peddling right now. Yeah. So I, I thought this was a good place to start our investigation into where Tucker's sweat identity predilections got their start. 
Okay. Um, in particular, I want to know if I can find it if there's any if there was like any person or outlet or piece of media that sold him on the great replacement. I want to know like if there was somebody that converted him to that way of thinking. Um, and like I said, I don't know that we'll find an answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna poke around and see what we can dig up. Sounds good to me. Um, we've been doing this since February. Yeah, isn't that, that crazy? Feels, that feels really like a really long time. Yeah, I think what we'll probably do will be in the nightly show next week, and then we'll talk about um, Charles Murray and Curtis Yarvin after that. If the nightly show is boring, they might do Charles Murray and Curtis Yarvin next week. We'll see what happens there. All right. Um, yeah. So Tyler, what's this one enemy this week? Uh, well, we have two of them. Uh, the first one's name is Jeff Carmen, and the second one's name is Master Gravy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much to all, again to all our supporters. Like I, I can't thank you guys enough for for honestly the help that you provided. Uh, like I still have car insurance because of you guys. <laughs> good deal that's important don't drive without car insurance folks well i i'm in the wonderful position of being borderline uninsurable due to having 11 points on my license <laughs> <laughs> and also needing to have full coverage because i still owe on my car so <laughs> oh troy why do you do this to yourself Okay. I know I'm 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 a self destructive disaster of a person, um, which is probably why I do this podcast too. <laughs> uh, thanks but, again to our patrons. Uh, we're on <laughs> Patreon. Uh, we're on Twitter. We have a website, tuckeredoutpod.com. Yep. Uh, you can join the Facebook group at Wokeristas. Um, that might be all of it. Yeah. Oh, email the show, tuckeredoutpod at gmail.com. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It will be back next week. In the meantime, don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you and try to enjoy y'all's lives. And thank you for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>